uh, the, sort of the, the picture you see behind me is a little, uh, maybe a little horrific. And when I got into my notes for Second Peter chapter 2 that I uh, had done during my days in preaching school, one of the things that popped out to me was our instructor who said, uh, after reading Second Peter chapter 2, that that sounded or felt like a horror story. You know, I don't do horror. I don't do that genre. I don't like it. Uh, it was bad enough that uh, this past week uh, I walked out into the garage and there was a giant uh, snake in our garage. And, uh, you know, I went the other way. You can talk to the kids uh, later about how big it was. But, uh, you know, I just don't do that. Okay, but, but the further you read in the New Testament, the further you read as you get back into sort of the books sort of at the end of it, the more instruction you read about false teaching. In the Old Testament, they're referred to as false prophets. But in the New Testament, the Bible writers refer to them as false teachers. And it makes sense, right? Because the church has been established in Acts chapter 2, and these various congregations are being planted around uh, the known world at that time. And the age of, of miraculous is starting to end. And so and the apostles, are, as they're doing their preaching, are starting to be martyred. You know, and so uh, those miracles are starting to go away. And because of that, uh, new leadership has to result uh, because the apostles are dying out. And so these new leaders begin to emerge, you know, and they're not able to rely on the, the miraculous uh, hands that were placed on some of them to give them some of that knowledge and wisdom. And so they're having to do what you and I do, right? And go to the book and to learn things that way. Uh, from the scriptures. We know that uh, from this morning's lesson that the New Testament has a lot of warnings for us as far as false teaching. You probably remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 15 on the Sermon on the Mount that we are to beware of the false prophets or the false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And that other verse I brought up this morning, 1 John chapter 1. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so when you read Jude and when you read Revelation and when you read Second Peter chapter two, that theme comes up over and over again. The Bible writers are trying to get uh, the, the Christians in those areas to be aware of the false teaching. Well, let, let's just remind ourselves, since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Second Peter, of just where we were. Uh, we started off. Uh, talking about the, remembering the promises of Jesus. Remember, uh, Peter begins by telling us uh, the, the source of those promises are from Jesus. And he also tells us that uh, the requirements of those promises, you remember those seven virtues that he gives, those seven Christian virtues? He says, add to your faith moral excellence and, and then knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. And then finally, he gave us the results of those promises, which would be entrance into the kingdom. And then the next week, we finish chapter one by talking about the truth. Remember the truth of Jesus. And Peter tells us, uh, he gives us some warnings, right? He says, I'm not going to be living much longer. And so I want you to remember these things. And even after I die, I still want you to remember these things and to continue on in them. And then uh, he gives us the reason why we should trust him was because he saw the glorified Christ. He witnessed Jesus up on the the Mount of Transfiguration. And then by the end of chapter one, he reminds us to uh, see the truth in Peter's writings, right? That it wasn't just him as a man that was writing down these things, but it was him moved by the Holy Spirit. A God's spirit gave him the words to write down for us today. 
Well, again, we're going to move into chapter two uh, this evening. And there's some subtle hints in, hints in chapter one uh, that we see of Paul maybe confronting these false teachers in this area. Remember, he, he says in verse three that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Maybe he's taking a hit at those false teachers by saying, you know, God's given us everything. There's no more revelation needed anymore because God's given us all. Again, the, those Christian virtues, he said, if you lack those things, you're blind, you're short-sighted. Again, he was an eyewitness, not them. Remember, he, he tells us that in chapter one. And then finally, at the, at the very end of chapter one, Again, Scripture was not written by mere men, but again, by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit. Well, if there are some subtle hits uh, that we see there in chapter 1, by the time we get to chapter 2, he's laying, uh, he's laying that, that all aside that, uh, because he's really going to go after them. So uh, let, let's dig into chapter 2 as we normally do. Read a few verses at a time, then we'll talk about those things. So Second uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, starting here in verse 1, notice Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep." Again, uh, when we read the Old Testament, we see the theme of false prophets pretty prevalent. Uh, You read Jeremiah, read Ezekiel, and and these false prophets are everywhere, it seems. God even gave them instructions through Moses, uh, particularly in Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22, how to deal with false prophets, how to know who's a false prophet. Moses recorded this, Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 20. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And that's how they were to know if a false prophet or who was a false prophet. If they spoke something concerning of a prophecy and it did not come true at all, they weren't to be afraid of them. Matter of fact, they were to stone that individual uh, uh, being a false prophet. But now the attention here in the New Testament are false teachers. And did you notice in our reading where they came from? Again, verse one, false prophets arose among the people. You know, we often think of uh, false teachers as those who um, are maybe outside of the church. You know, maybe you're watching a, a TV evangelist and, you know, the thing that he's kind of getting over and over again is, you know, send me your seed money. You know, send money, send money. You know, those are sometimes what I envision as a false teacher. But Peter says false teachers were arising among them. They were Christians. But now, because of their greed that we read about, their sensuality, uh, these things, they are, they're stepping up. They're coming among the people. And they will introduce, he says, secretly introduce these heresies. Denying the master who bought them, he says. So uh, what they're doing is they're likely they're denying the deity of the Lord Jesus. You know, maybe they're saying, well, he's just a wise teacher. Uh, he's not truly God, or maybe he's an, an, he's an angel. Right? He's an angelic being. 
He's not truly God. God can't die on a cross. You know, that was some of the first century thoughts of the Greeks and the Romans and even the Jews. God cannot die on the cross, so this must not be God. Or how could God live in the flesh? If the flesh is so evil, you know, how could God come and live in the flesh? And these were the prevalent thoughts of the day. And so these, these false teachers were coming in and introducing these, these heresies. The Bible says that they will pull others away by their sensuality, their, their unbridled lust for power. You know, that's what they want. And in turn, they're going to blaspheme the truth or others uh, will have blasphemed the truth. And not only will they pull souls away, he says there, but they will damage the church and her reputation. And so they're going to exploit you, Peter says. They're going to exploit you with their false words, their greediness. And he lets his readers know, but the, kind of the positive part of these read, readings, he lets his readers know that these false teachers are not going to get away with it. He says God's judgment is not idle concerning them. Uh, he is not asleep when it comes to what they're doing. And now he's going to give us really a list of examples uh, for us to remember when God punished the wicked. So let's notice verses 4 through 10. Peter continues, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So Peter starts to list some of these examples of when a God... Um, combated the, the, the unrighteous. The first one he mentions is God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Well, where is this in Scripture, in, in the Old Testament? Well, it's not recorded for us. This is something that Peter is kind of give us, giving us a glimpse into that's not recorded. But he's writing about, remember, he's writing about God's judgment. Okay? He, he's not writing about the angels. Uh, his his uh, objective is not to tell us you know, about uh, angels and, and giving us a topical lesson about angels. But he's talking about God's judgment. And he's using an account where angels had sinned uh, to get his point across. Well, what is he in reference to? Well, again, we're not sure because that's not recorded for us. But many believe that, you know, that Satan at one time was one of these angels who revolted in heaven and, uh, and in his pride. Uh, we can look at Jude chapter 6 as well. But here is an account of, again, God getting through to them that he's not going to let this unrighteousness uh, go on. That he's going to take action with it. He gives us another example. Remember when God did not spare the ancient world. You know, this is the antediluvian period. This is the period before the flood. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 told us that there was the wickedness of man was great on that day. And remember, every intent of their hearts was, on continually, was continually on evil in this, in this time period. It was so bad that in verse 7, God said that he wanted to blot out man from the earth. 
But only Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so Noah and his family made it onto the ark and were saved. But again, that whole entire world was wiped out. Uh, He gives us a third example of Sodom and Gomorrah. He did not spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is found in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Uh, Peter says he made them an example of those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. You know, we, we remember this account in Genesis chapter 19. Right, these angels, they come down to Sodom and Lot brings them in and gives them a shelter because there's these men who, the Bible says, wants to have relations with them or know them carnally. And so Lot rescues them, brings them into his home. And uh, a lot of people, you know, obviously we understand what's going on here. And a lot of people try to uh, talk away what the, the sin that's going on here in Sodom and Gomorrah, the sodomy, the, the homosexuality. And they'll turn to passages like Ezekiel chapter 16. I just wanted to read this really quick for you. Ezekiel chapter 16, and starting in verse 49. They'll turn to passages like this where Ezekiel is prophesying and using Sodom, uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, as an example. And so in Ezekiel 16 and verse 49, it says, Behold, uh, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. And so people will take that verse, Ezekiel 16, verse 49, and say, See? See, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was not destroyed because of homosexuality, but they were destroyed because of their arrogance because of the abundance of food that they had and did not share, and because of their careless ease, right? They were lazy. They weren't providing for people. But they failed to keep reading in this chapter because the very next verse, uh, verse 50, Ezekiel continues and says, Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. Again, this was a city that was committing abominations, so much so that God destroyed it by raining fire and brimstone upon it. And again, uh, you know, even Jude, the, right, the, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote in his epistle that the, the reason why they were destroyed because they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And so again, here is an example of God giving us uh, here in 2 Peter chapter 2 uh, of, that he did not spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. How much more do you think these false teachers are going to get away with? Because that's what he brings up next. Right, the, the Lord knew how to save Noah, Peter says. The Lord knew how to save Lot. Remember, Noah was surrounded by all of these ungodly people. Lot was tormented by the wicked deeds of his neighbors. And if he could save those individuals, Peter makes the application that he can save the godly from any temptation of false teachers. You know, it's not going to be easy, though. Right? Uh, Noah had to build an ark. You know, it possibly took him uh, you know, 50 to 80 years to build that ark. Lot lost his wife in that process of getting out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, Lot's wife turned back and looked, and she became that pillar of salt. It's not going to be easy, Peter says, but he knows how to save the godly. He's not ignoring the wicked deeds of the false teachers or their lifestyles, who Peter continues saying they indulged in the flesh and its corrupt desires, Uh, these men who despised authority. And so verses 10 through 22, as we come to this final part, we're going to remember the characteristics of false teachers. This is where sort of it gets really intense with the the imagery that Peter is going to give to us. Look at verses uh, 10 and 11. He 
says, daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. You know, these false teachers are bold. They are bold, he says. They look at themselves as the authority and no one else. They're daring. They're self-willed. Someone said the beginning of sin is a self-sufficient pride. And that describes these false teachers. And as an example, they do not even tremble when they speak evil of dignitaries. Now, I know in some of your translations, it might talk about um, angelic beings, or maybe in other translations, it talks about um, dignitaries. And kind of, uh, you know, whether it's the one or the other, I think we understand the point. As these false teachers, uh, they don't care who you are. They don't care if you're uh, an apostle, a leader in the church, or even an angel. They're going to talk bad about you. They're not like the angels, though, who are more powerful than they, Peter says. The, the false teachers have no problem slandering them. But the, the angels, he says, they, won't, they, or they will even refrain from speaking and acting out against them. Verses 12 through 16, notice this as Peter continues. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reviling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the ways of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgressions, for a mute donkey speaking with a voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Did you get that? Did you, did you hear the, the imagery, the voice of Peter there? Uh, again, you know, I, I thought of this as sort of you know, a horror story, uh, trying to get the imagery uh, that Peter is describing of these false teachers. They're unreasoning animals. Right? They're, they're headstrong. They're natural brute beasts. They're irrational. To reason with them would be of to no avail. They're like savage beasts. They, they only understand force. Uh, they want it their way. They're reviling where they have no knowledge. Right? They're speaking evil of things they don't understand. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Right? Uh, there's no shame to what they're doing. They've left shame behind. Uh, they no longer care who sees them uh, do this, do these things. They, they revel in their deceptions as they carouse with you. They're shaking your hand at, maybe at the potluck meal, uh, pretending that, that you're brethren. But in the back of their mind, they're thinking, this guy has no clue of what I'm doing. You know, they're basking in their deception, Peter says. They have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. And they're always looking for things to gratify them and to fill their, fulfill their lusts. People are objects to these false teachers to be used for gratification and then dismissed. And then he also says they entice unstable souls. That's a, that word entice is a fishing term. Uh, it means to snare with a bait. Right? We understand that. Uh, like a fisherman who lures in his prey, these false teachers, they're luring the immature, those who are maybe weak in the faith or new to the faith, and they see an opportunity to pounce on someone, they're going to take it. Peter says they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. 
And then he brings up another example from the Old Testament. They follow the way of Balaam who loved the wages of unrighteousness. You know, Balaam is an oft forgotten character in the Old Testament. Do you remember Balaam? Uh, he's found in Numbers chapter 22 through, through 24, but he's also mentioned in Deuteronomy and Joshua and Nehemiah and Micah and in the New Testament, Second uh, Peter, of course, and Jude and Revelation. Do you remember this story? King Balak, uh, the Moabite, he sees the Israelites coming towards the land of Canaan. They're on the outside of the land of the Canaan, but they see them coming towards them. And, you know, Israel, of course, is uh, mighty uh, in war right now. And they see them coming as numerous as the sand of the sea, we're told. And so Balak, King Balak, sends for this prophet named Balaam. He asks for Balaam to come and to curse the people of Israel. Now, of course, he's got some money incentives with this. He brings some dignitaries to Balaam and puts on a show for him. But uh, Balaam says to him that when he goes to God, uh, basically in a vision that he cannot curse these people because God has blessed them. And God also tells him not to go to Balak. Do not go to King Balak. Well, Balak doesn't give up. He sends another group of people with even more incentives, more money to Balaam. But this time, Balaam sort of reacts to that. Right? Balak knows what people want. Right? He knows they want power and money. And so uh, Balaam here appears in that uh, in that story to start to hold out for a little bit more. And Balaam should have said, uh, again, God has blessed those people, leave them alone. But instead he started wavering. He was impressed with what Balak could offer him. Maybe, maybe he thought he could persuade God. And so he went to him again in prayer. But God told him basically, you know, if you want to go, go. I'm not going to stop you. And we all remember this part of the story, I bet, is um, God got angry with Balaam for going. And so as Balaam's traveling on his donkey, do you remember the donkey uh, who he sees the the angel of the Lord, but uh, Balaam does not see him? And so the donkey keeps going, steering from the path right and left, and Balaam keeps striking the donkey over and over again. And finally, uh, that donkey spoke to Balaam, his master, and said, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And at that time, finally, Balaam's eyes were opened and he saw the danger before him. Well, again, why does Peter bring up that account in the Old Testament amidst of these false teachers? Well, that's because Balaam in the Old Testament was the prototype of those who use religion for material gain. See, false teachers love the ways of unrighteousness, just like uh, Balaam. And, and again, uh, that's another characteristic Peter tells us about false teachers. Let's finish with the, follow- the final verses here, verses 17 through 22. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black nar- darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if they, after have been escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. 
Peter finishes this, these thoughts by letting us know that false teachers are empty. Right? The promises, they promise much, but they deliver absolutely nothing. They speak arrogant words of vanity. Right? These are empty words. And apparently freedom was their theme. They were offering freedom, yet Peter says they are more entangled uh, in the enslaving behavior of sin because of it. In verse 20 and 21 that I just read, you know, I've always said sort of with our theme here this night that these have always been the scariest verses to me uh, in the New Testament. Again, notice verse 21, for it'd be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. You know, this uh, does not just affect the false teacher, but this is anyone who has come to a knowledge of the truth. And then they get entangled in the defilements of the world. And the state of being lost, Peter says, is worse than their original state of being lost. It would be better for them to have never have known the gospel, never obeyed the gospel, than to have obeyed it, but then go back into the world. You made it. You were in the kingdom. You were saved from eternal separation from the Lord. But you walked away, Peter said. And then he quotes Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11. It's like a dog who returns to his own vomit. Precious soul who turns from Christ back to the pursuits of the flesh. You know, this imagery, it's not a pretty sight. It's not a pretty sight at all. A dog vomiting, that's disgusting, right? Peter says, but returning to it and eating it, you know, that's, that's vile. And so will it be for the soul on the day of judgment, like a sow, a pig that is washed and heads right back into the mud. It would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandments handed down to them. Well, this evening, this wasn't necessarily a fun sermon to write uh, nor to preach. It almost, again, it leaves you sort of a, a sickness in your stomach when you read through it. And you go through each of these words and you define the words that Peter is using. You know, like I said, this chapter is almost like a horror story. Peter uses some of the colorful imagery to depict to us who, what these false teachers are like. And they're out there, and we need to be ready to combat them via the Word of God. And congregations, uh, especially, uh, you know, the eldership has been given uh, this. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 9 talks about how they specifically need to be on guard to be able to identify them and to protect, protect the flock from them. But the thing that we can rely on, that we can uh, have our hope in, is that Peter says their punishment awaits, and we can be certain of that. Remember the words spoken about false teachers. Again, 2 Peter chapter 2. Next week, we'll jump into 2 Peter chapter 3. And, uh, and this will be sort of the last chapter uh, of this epistle where he's going to talk about the day. Right? The day. The day. The day of judgment and what's going to happen to the earth. And it's a great study. I don't know if we'll get through it in one lesson or two. I haven't decided yet, but again, I'm looking forward to studying that with you next week. But again, as we offer the invitation tonight, uh, if anyone is ready to obey the gospel, needs to obey the gospel, we would love the opportunity to help you with that, to have your sins washed away in baptism. Or if you need the, the prayers of this congregation, uh, if you need to uh, ask anything, uh, we would love the opportunity to help you in your walk as a Christian. Please let us know as together we stand and sing this song of invitation.